purpose of today's forum is to discuss the global pandemic response, what we did right, what went wrong, what should be done now, and what needs to be addressed long term. I sit here with an esteemed team of bipartisan colleagues from all walks of medicine and politics and life. We're physicians and scientists, and we understand virology. We understand how disease works. Mandating these vaccines makes no sense and is completely inconsistent with the core principles of Western bioethics developed since the Nuremberg trials and codified in federal law as the federal common rule. Thousands like me have lost our jobs for declining a novel injection whose safety and efficacy data still remains hidden. We had treatment early on from the very first day in March. There was treatment for inflammation, there was treatment for blood clotting. There was even treatment that we could try for the virus. There's treatment for respiratory demise. It's been a fraud from the beginning. The media studiously avoided covering the 10 proper trials of hydroxychloroquine outpatient use that showed significant benefit for hospitalization and mortality. So the question is, why? Why have cheap, safe, and effective drugs been ignored for the treatment of COVID-19 which could have saved maybe 500,000 lives. These are crimes against humanity. We have patients who are falling ill with a treatable disease and they can't get treatment. Let's face it, nobody, nobody can tell you the long-term safety profile of these vaccines. Nobody, it's unknowable because we haven't taken the time. We are seeing unprecedented numbers of athletes dying on the field in Europe, unprecedented. Of these cardiac arrests, half of them don't come back. I am seeing an uptick in cancers. I'm seeing these odd, stable cancers take off like wildfires after the vaccines. We should have tested these for cancer-causing potential before we started giving them to our kids. The CDC is not the nation's super doctor. And I'm going to scandalize a lot of people by saying the CDC is not a medical organization. It's a public health organization focused on infectious disease spread. Well, this false construct from our federal agencies that this is a pandemic and the unvaccinated are spreading is a pathophysiological lie. It's time to come together and move forward using fact-based reasoning rather than outdated and politicized policies which are not consistent with current scientific data. We have so many tools in the toolbox. It's a message I want everybody to hear. We can beat this disease. That's called the practice of medicine. All right, well, it was an incredible event. I want to thank Senator Ron Johnson, who has been spectacular with this conversation, bringing in first the injured, some of which were injured in the trials uh, of the vaccine and letting them be heard and going down on the Senate record there. And then on Monday, uh, what you just saw was a five-hour discussion amongst some of the best doctors and scientists in the world on the topic of the pandemic, on masks, on lockdowns, on the vaccine, the development of the vaccine. Um, and as he said, we have only scratched the surface by the end of that. Uh, we are only scratching the surface and we're certainly going to even make a lighter scratch today. But I want to take you through some of this, the highlights and so many great things said. But for those of you that have a short attention span or a family that will never watch that, uh, we're going to sort of isolate these these highlights. And, and I'm so honored to be joined right now by one of the great doctors that was at that hearing, uh, Dr. Richard or so. 
Uh, it's really a pleasure. Thanks, Dell. All right. Thanks for all you do. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, you know, how did this come about? Like, I mean, how did this, this event get set up? I mean, because it was like, like the best of the best. I, I love you saying that because I was, I was driving here today. I was thinking to myself and I was talking to one of the other organizers. And I said, we're really America's team. Yeah. And I said, so it's not the Cowboys anymore. We're America's team. Yeah. We're standing up for all for all Americans right now. And we're we're really we're able to join together for several reasons. We all were picked off. You know, I've been fighting the fight since March and got uh, um, tagged pretty hard in March 2020. Okay. Many others did. And then one by one, we all came on the scene, Harvey, uh, Peter and all the others. Um, yeah. And uh, and then when Malone came on board uh, this year, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah. Here's the creator. Here's the creator. Of, of what's now Frankenstein. I mean, what, what greater vindication than the creator of the technology you've been arguing and fighting about saying this isn't working when the creator himself comes and says, yes, I'm one of the guys that invented this and it is a Frankenstein. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Yes. We must stop that. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that's a good thought in my mind. We've created Frankenstein. Now, lipid nanoparticles carrying a messenger RNA toxin yeah. is absolutely uh, scientifically not a smart thing. So. Right. But basically, we all came together one by one, and eventually, we, we started going online together, and then we formed a group um, in late August, uh, in September last year, and basically called Global COVID Summit, or the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists. It was a core of mostly the people you saw there, yeah. and we formed that core, and then with our declaration, which um, I don't mind just saying, we, yeah. we said, let's doctor be, let doctors be doctors. Yep. Let us, tr let us tr treat patients, let us heal patients, let us do our job. Patients understand that we know and can give them advice, informed consent, let us do our job for inflammation, scarring and wound healing. That's all it is, it's not that hard. Number two, vaccination of children is absolutely, should not be mandated. And this is a very dangerous thing that we're seeing um, this is uh, not a disease of children. This is not a problem for children. Uh, this should not be happening. The 5 to 11-year-olds, for instance, it's 0 0.1 per 100,000 inf yeah. infection fatality rate. And, in the, and the third uh, part of our, our message was natural immunity denial needs to stop. Natural There's no such thing as super immunity. Uh, right. There's no superman. Right. It's natural immunity. Right. Natural immunity denial is ridiculous. We have 146 studies versus the CDC's one study, right. 146 to one. Right. Fantastic. Well, you're a very passionate guy. You shared some of this, <laughs> that passion. So here's just a taste of uh, Dr. Urso uh, on the panel at the Senate hearing. Early on, there was so much we didn't know. And we, we were all, well, Dr. Urso was shaking his hand. No, that's not true, Senator. Okay. We knew early on. We had treatment early on from the very first day in March. That's a, that's a fabricated lie. It's, it's scientific fraud to say that. My first patient, um, I treated with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, vitamin D, aspirin, and steroids. And I literally was shocked when I went and talked about it that, um, uh, that people were really coming at me about the steroids. Because anybody who treats respiratory syncytial virus and other viruses, the inflammatory phase is, is typically one of the most important phases. The NIH, the CDC, and the FDA are not involved in medical education. We went through a residency, a medical school, a residency program. I've seen 300,000 patients. I've never called the FDA, the NIH, or the CDC one time for advice. for advice. 
It's not who we call. So to have them dictate our medical practices has to stop. We've got to reinvent the wheel, basically, because our current system is the corporate practice of medicine telling doctors what to do when we already know. I mean, it's really such a powerful point. You know, one of the things that kept coming up at this was the, the discussion about the doctor-patient relationship. What is, you know, when you came through school, define what the doctor-patient relationship is is supposed to be. Uh, my mentors were guys like Red Duke, um, uh, uh, Cooley, DeBakey. There were people we looked up to. I remember coming to the medical center, the Texas Medical Center, and wondering what city this was. And they said, it's the Texas Medical Center. And I was like, wow, I yeah. couldn't wait. And I... And, and these people lived in the hospital. They lived for their patients. They cared so much about their patients. The passion and the, and the intensity that they brought was something that it, it, right now, as I talk about it, I have chills. This is what I grew up with. And this is what I wanted to embody as I went forward. And it was a wonderful thing. And it kept going through the early part of the 90s, Adele. We were still, the doctors were still pretty much in charge. The hospitals were our partners. Felt like the insurers were kind of on the outside. And then the hospitals banded together and I thought, well, that's good because we'll be able to fight the insurers a little better. Um, some of my good friends were actually the head of two major hospital systems. By sort of incorporating, making bigger hospitals, yes. we'll be able to like, deal with some of the pressure coming from insurers and telling us what to do. The hospital will protect us. Yes, exactly. Because uh, we, we felt like we were kind of weak against the insurers at the time. And so I was all excited about it. I went into private practice um, um, in, in 2005 and I went to a place where we had two offices. And I thought, you know, there's a couple of us there. I thought, hey, let's do what the hospitals are doing. We banded together and we ended up uh, bringing 27 hospitals, 27 offices together. We had the biggest practice in the nation. And now we're the second biggest practice in the nation. So yeah. I think the growth always seems good at the time. But what it's, what it's, what's happened is it's taken away the power from the physicians who are now almost all employed by either uh, medical schools, hospitals, or some other corporate entity. And I suspect now we'll probably get... Wal Walgreens and, and, and these others that are going to take over. They've taken over, you know, it's going to be the corporate practice of medicine. That's what we're seeing. That's why they won't stand up. That's why they don't speak out. It's not because they're not critical thinkers. They're just afraid. So the doctor essentially now is being dictated to a policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to be whatever I feel like my patient needs. It's my personal response. I mean, a doctor to me is the only one personally responsible for my treatment as a patient. Hospital's not responsible. They don't care. Certainly Tony Fauci over there in Washington, D.C. doesn't affect him at all if my patient dies. But if my patient dies, it affects me. It affects me emotionally. It affects my record and what's going on. So if you're making decisions for that patient, certainly with your butt on the line, it should be your decision. But that's not what happened here, right? So I mean, well said. When it comes to this, this COVID, you know, and how we're going to handle it, the hospitals started dictating, you know, how you're going to handle it. And where are those dictates coming from? Tony Fauci, maybe their pharmaceutical sponsors, how much money and the incentive is incentivizing, right, that happened, whether it was getting incentivized to call the COVID patient. Well, let's just shut down and only take COVID patients. We'll be in the money, you know, and incentivized to use remdesivir, a failed drug, and then incentivized. And all of that flies in the face of if you were as a doctor, didn't want to do it. Did you have a choice? You, you covered so much ground there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what you what part of what I wanted to people to hear is that we we basically were stuck in the system where if you did something against the system, you're going to lose your job. Wow. And, you know, you heard Paul Merrick say it. Yeah. You know, he, he sat and watched 
You heard the tears. I've seen him do it. Yeah, that's we're going to play his video several coming times. up here in a minute. He basically sat and watched seven people die while yeah. he gave remdesivir. And for people who don't know, the virus is replication incompetent. It can't replicate after about five or six days, which means it can't, remdesivir can't work because it needs the virus to replicate in order for it to work. So I always say people don't die of the virus. They die of the viral particles in day eight, nine, ten, and so on, causing inflammation and blood clotting and respiratory uh, stress. So that's one of the things I think people don't understand is that there's actually very good treatment for respiratory st stress and there's very good treatment for inflammation and blood clotting. And we're ignoring that. We're all thinking about Fauci and the virus. There's no, he doesn't, no virologists need to apply after the fifth day. We don't need a virologist. We need pulmonologists. We need cardiologists. We need hematologists. That's, you know, that's who we need. Because right, once you're past the infection point and, and we have a, we have, I mean, what I've said on this show for the first time ever, as far as I've ever seen, I can't think of a single disease or a single issue where the mantra in all modern medicine is early treatment is best. Early detection in cancer, breast cancer, whatever. Early detection, early treatment is the best way in every scenario. Yet here we hear in every hospital, there's really, here's our treatment. It does appear you have COVID. So go home, let this thing proliferate through your body. We're not going to do nothing to stop you know, the expansion of the virus throughout your body and the proliferation. And then if your lips turn blue, come back to us then. Then we'll put you on a respirator and give you a drug that is now at this point incapable of doing anything. As you said, we're moving into all sorts of respiratory and brain issues. You know, when it comes to, you mentioned hydroxychloroquine was what you started working on. Um, Dr. Harvey Reich talks a little bit about that. So let's take a look at this video. We heard at the beginning of the pandemic that one of the medications that has been used in early treatment, hydroxychloroquine or HC, uh, HCQ, was a game changer and would be effective in the treatment of COVID outpatients starting during the first few days of the illness. And then we heard study after study and media report after media report saying that HCQ doesn't work. However, this was a sham. The media reports never covered how the negative studies were actually fake studies. And the media studiously avoided covering the 10 proper trials of hydroxychloroquine outpatient use that showed significant benefit for hospitalization and mortality. That was Dr. Harvey Risch talking about the fake studies. Now, when you hear that, you think, what does he mean by fake studies? What does he mean by fake studies? Well, I think everyone needs to hear this if they haven't heard it. If I told you that Harvard was in on the game and our major journal, The Lancet, was in on the game, if I said this two years ago, I said, that's crazy. Three years ago, I said, no way. That yeah. didn't happen. So one of the major studies was done in England, okay? Um, and they used hydroxychloroquine and they, um, um, and they had something called the recovery trial. But the one that I'm talking about, the one that was the backbreaker for hydroxychloroquine was the fake fabricated Lancet study done by, by Harvard CV, CV docs, not just any, the head of Hardy, Harvard Cardiovascular, he, who hadn't seen a single patient, 693 hospitals, 93,000 patients, um, six continents. I knew it was fabrication right at the beginning. So it, the, the, the depth of the, of the fraud is so deep. It goes to our highest levels of institutions, Harvard, our highest levels of journal, journals like The Lancet. And they actually put a fabricated study and we all uncovered it in literally like two weeks because most of us who do scientific research knew that you couldn't compile 
all that data that quickly and get all the ethics reviews that you need. It's it's a nightmare to go to each individual institution. And how, to do that. remind me of the numbers again? How many institutions they said it was? Uh, Six hundred seventy-one hospitals. Okay. Now, remind you, they don't they're not on Windows XP. Okay, right. they're all on their own separate thing. They and don't this talk was from each. around the world or from around the world. Around the world, so they were saying we have China, China. Australia. Africa, like, and somebody said, "Wait a minute!" They collect pull that off in the amount of time that you said you're doing is impossible. I would say, so I would sometimes say, Soros had to get like twenty thousand people to work on this and donate about fifty million dollars. It might have gotten done, but it it, obviously I knew it was a fraud right from the get go. And so it got called out, and when guys like you started saying, show us the data. Show us exactly where your data comes from yeah. so that we can start looking at it. Surge's Sphere was the one collecting that data. And as it turned out, they refused to provide it. They didn't have it. The entire thing was fraud. It was made up. And the Lancet had to retract that paper. And that was being quoted by Tony Fauci, being quoted by the health agency in the United States of America saying it came from Harvard. And now we know hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. And the entire thing was based on a fraud. There's com- complete corruption and fraud at the highest levels. But let me say this. I know people at the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. It doesn't trickle all the way down the line. Some fantastic scientists there. But the problem is at the top levels, they're basically very closely aligned with Farmageddon. And basically at this point, we really have no control over what's going on there. We can't even get them to show the data. Pfizer's not going to show us the data. So we, we literally are stuck not being able to review the vaccine data, for instance, you know, yeah. and, and this is a no novel vaccine. Everyone wants to review the raw data. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. That's called transparency. That's how we're supposed to do right. science. All right. Well, this is Harvey Risch talking about the immune system. People who've had COVID and then get vaccinated have lower levels of anti-nucleocapsid uh, antibodies. And this means, and since the vaccines don't address the nucleocapsid antigens, they only address the spike, it means that they're doing something that's damaging the immune response in a more general way than just what they do with the spike. And this is empirical data that Public Health UK has published. So we know that this is happening. It's not a theoretical issue about all of the niceties of, of laboratory biology and virology of things that could happen. It's a real thing that's been really observed by their testing. I mean, a lot of us know Dr. Harvey Risch because he is, you know, one of the go-tos on Fox News. But I just want to show his CV. I mean, this the, just when you look at this, folks, this thing is 73 pages long. We could spend the rest of the day showing you how much, you know, Dr. Harvey Risch has achieved in his career. And so when you hear the pejoratives thrown at you guys, you know, that, oh, they're just extremists or fringe doctors. You guys are some of the most mainstream doctors in the world at as we know it. So when he was saying, when he's talking about, about the uh, immune system and, and nucleocapsid, for layman, what, what does that mean? So, so what, what's being thrown at us is, uh, and again, the Superman, super immunity. So if you get the, the virus and then you get the vaccine, you'll have super immunity. No, you don't. And he points that out. And right. there's a couple scary things. Not only do you not get super immunity, but you get attacks on P53 and BRCA genes these are your mutation suppressor genes. They're called tumor suppressor genes. These are being attacked by the spike protein. The paper was cited. I cited it on, on, uh, after Harvey finished talking. Yeah. The other thing that's happening is toll-like receptors 7 and 8 are getting attacked. That is important for T-cell surveillance in your immune system. That's not a good thing for, your, for the spike protein is doing that after the vaccinations. So what, he, what he's addressing is not only is 
natural immunity denial ridiculous. But to say we have super immunity, it's actually, in, in some cases, the antibody production is going also in a way towards the spike rather than the nucleocapsid, which is this more superior immunity. So in every which way, we have a counter argument that is much more detailed, much more uh, well done. And like I said, with the natural immunity denial, 146 to 1, this is, we have almost indisputable evidence that everything we're saying is completely true. And that's the scary part for them because we've done our homework. We have world-class people. That's why I say we're America's doctors, we're the world's doctors. That's what we're trying to do is lift up the others so that they can come forward and feel free to speak. It's a scientific fraud. Next, we have Dr. Paul Alexander, who was brought in by the Trump administration to oversee. He worked for the WHO. He had been asked by the WHO as soon as the pandemic started to start really looking at the data. He is mass, you know, his ability to crunch numbers and, and look at it and figure out what was happening all over the world is bar none. So from his vantage point, from inside of the firestorm that was taking place with the pandemic, from the perspective of having worked with Health and Human Services, this is what he had to say about natural immunity. We put together about 150 pieces of evidence and we found conclusively that um, natural immunity is not just equal to, but far superior than vaccinal immunity. And I think um, there was this misperception from around uh, the fall of 2020 to the beginning of 2021, when the vaccines were beginning to get to the completion phase and be rolled out, uh, there were some studies put out there, some small studies saying that, look, your, your blood antibodies are waning, so therefore you're losing your immunity. But these public health officials at CDC and NIH, they knew better than that. They knew that they were misleading the public and they were misleading the government and the population. They knew better than that, that your serum antibodies can wane. But they knew that we had another compartment, your cellular immunity, your long-lived B-cell immunity, T-cell immunity, that was robust, potent, lifelong, durable. We had a study uh, done around 2008, 2009, published in SIDRAP, that looked at the persons who, there were some persons still alive at about 95 years old from the Spanish flu, and they were infected. And what the research showed is that those persons who were still alive, their blood still produced a cellular response, T-cell immunity, Spanish flu, 90 years prior. That evidenced to us the robustness of the, of, of the immunity. I mean, bringing evidence in, and frankly, what he's saying there in, in the indictment there is they knew, meaning the guys I was working with, Tony Fauci, Robert Redfield, Deborah Burks, they knew natural immunity was superior to this vaccine from the very beginning. Yet all to this day, all we hear is, well, I'm not sure about natural immunity. We are locking down. We treat naturally immune people as though they are completely unvaccinated or a leper really, when we know that they have the strongest immune system there is. What are your thoughts on, on this? A couple of thoughts. You know, one, we have the SARS-CoV-1 patients from uh, 2003, and they, uh, a really good study, were, were done at the Karolinska Institute, um, and they showed that the requisite immunity, the T-cell immunity, the robust T-cell immunity was still there. Remember, though, that there's also memory B cells that make that mm -hmm. make antibodies. So we have requisite immunity in many levels to deal with 
past invaders. That's that's what this our system isn't designed to do. So, you know, it's to to deny that is again scientific fraud. Um, everyone knows uh, it's just, this is this goes to immunology 101. To, so to say the highest level um, politicians, I'm going to call them politicians, um, are are saying uh, in our political fields. Uh, Fauci, I'm going to add him to that list, uh, unfortunately, because he's obviously a bad scientist. So to say these things are not true means either he doesn't know, which makes him a very bad scientist, or it's fraud. And, and I, I know it's fraud. So Now, let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a vaccine that is said to be equal to in, its, in the duration and robustness of the, of the protection? I mean, is, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, natural immunity is superior and every vaccine that's ever attempted to mirror it may come close, attempts to, but has there ever been one that reaches it or bypasses it? So natural immunity, the purpose of vaccines is to provide immunity in places where there's a high rate of death. So if you, you, know, if you think about it that way, um, there is a reason for vaccination. That's why we believe in vaccination. That's why my six kids have had 300 vaccines. Mm-hmm. All right, but at the end of the day, this is to say that natural immunity is not superior. If you could survive smallpox, you have an incredible immunity at that point. Right. So to go and say natural immunity is not superior would be the first time ever. Okay. Now, I kind of, when I was sitting there, all you guys weighed in on natural immunity, right? And it's something that we've talked about on this show years before there was even the pandemic. And, um, you know, I myself grew up, I wasn't vaccinated as a child. Um, I have natural immunity to everything that I did catch that was available to catch, handled it fine, think I'm doing pretty good. Um, but I was a little frustrated and I, and I want to I want to like I'm going to chip at you a little bit because I feel like mainstream medicine have not uttered the words about natural immunity. You all seem to know about it, said it's, you know, it's immune, immunology 101. Yet I can't remember the last time I heard a mainstream doctor mention natural immunity. I think you guys have always known, geez, if we talk about that, then my belief in vaccines will be undermined. And maybe my patients won't think about, you know, getting the vaccine. Am I wrong? I mean, it's it, 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 it's it's. It's, I'm glad it's happening now, but I'm a little frustrated that it took, you know, a lie this big and a dangerous vaccine to actually get doctors to start telling the truth about natural immunity. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with what you just said. Uh, in ter- uh, there's a couple of things here. One, most docs aren't exposed to vaccine injuries. So, so in general, if somebody says, how many people have died of the flu vaccine? Not that many. You know, there's, there's a lot. So this is the first vaccine we've been exposed to in history where, you know, it's, as you know, this number of vaccine over this last year has trumped the amount of deaths that's occurred over the last 30 years. Correct. So the, uh, the numbers game comes in and makes it really apparent that vaccines aren't always safe. But historically, you're sort of trained like, oh, yeah, you know, we stopped smallpox. We did, you know, we did all these things, wonderful things with vaccines. But what people don't know, all right, for the public is the real reason we have a, a burst in, in population is basically clean water. Right. And, and I'm not taking anything away from vaccines. They help some things, but they, the clean water has led to a major rise in population that is dwarfs everything else. It's probably 95% right. of the reason that we have a rise in population. So you need to put it in its perspective. So all these people saying vaccines are fantastic and now you're just going to kill all these people. Yeah. No, it's clean water. That's the main thing that's basically done the job. And to go to your point, yes, I think most of us, including me, really never thought that much about it. Um, and now that I look back on it, I see that was probably a mistake. We were letting it creep. 
I remember, you know, I don't know, Dell, if you remember this, but back in the in the early 80s, they were saying the they cried wolf like if we can't get, you know, the, the lawyers off us, we're not going to make these vaccines. And a lot of us were like, well, that seems kind of unfair. You know, like we don't we want them to make good vaccines. Yeah. And so that story stuck here in most of the people in my generation. Like, oh, gosh, we don't want the lawyers. Of course, we're referencing the 1986 Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which took all liability away. The industry is saying we're losing money from death and injury, lawsuits against us on vaccines. They said to Ronald Reagan, if you don't protect us from liability, we're going to stop making vaccines. And, of course, the medical industry said, whoa, don't let that happen. Give them the liability so we can keep this great life-saving measure. And you remember, on the, like, on the shelf. It, it, it sort of paired with the smoking thing, with the smoking injury. Like, well, we'll build an, we'll be in a fund like we did for smokers and asbestos. And it seemed like, well, okay, that's catching some of these people. Yeah. It seemed reasonable at the time. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're, you know, you know, I'm glad we're able to have this conversation because it's what this is about. And, yeah. I, and I, and I know I'm challenging you a little bit. Well, so when we start thinking about. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the conversation at this hearing really started getting into ethics. And one of the questions that I'm having, and I'm sure those of you that are, you know, fighting the good fight, shall we say, is how is it that so many doctors are going along with protocols and programs and decisions that seem completely unethical? So speaking of ethics, a guest that we've had on the high wire, this is Aaron Cariotti talking about the ethics around this situation. I want to talk about medical ethics because I'm concerned that many of our pandemic policies have ignored foundational principles of medical ethics. During the initial lockdowns in 2020, hospitals sat empty for weeks. Hospital staff, including doctors, were even sent home as we had canceled surgeries and other procedures and we're waiting for an influx of COVID patients that did not arrive until months later. We effectively abandoned patients that were suffering from other conditions and had other medical needs. Another thing that patients in the hospitals and their families were denied was the basic human good of burying the dead. I don't know if uh, folks are aware of this, but in the early days of the pandemic, a theoretical risk that maybe a corpse maybe might somehow, even though it contradicted all known science on respiratory viruses, somehow still spread COVID. This is a very weird paranoid thought. Caused many health departments with the support of the CDC to refuse to give the body back to the family. The bodies were, um, the bodies were, you know, incinerated basically, and they would give you the ashes, whether or not uh, you, you, whether you wanted a, a burial or not. One of, the, one of the most painful conversations I had in the hospital, as the head of uh, the ethics committee, I had a lot of conversations with families whose loved ones were dying of COVID. And this was a case of a, a patient irretrievably, uh, at that point, dying of COVID. The family had finally come to accept that difficult reality that the patient wasn't gonna survive the hospitalization. And then they asked about help for funeral arrangements. And the social worker told them, no, I'm sorry. Um, you, you know, we, we can't give your loved one back to you. Uh, we can't give the remains back to you because the health department won't allow it. So this, this theoretical, nonsensical risk that obviously turned out to be false anyway, uh, was placed above that basic human good of 
of burying the dead. No, no sane society in the history of humankind since the days of Antigone has ever done this to people. I mean, that testimony is so shocking. Of course, you really should see the, 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 the breadth of what was said there. We're cutting these into smaller pieces. But the idea, we've seen it, people that can't be with their loved ones when they are dying. And then to add insult to the, to the greatest injury and horror, now you can't even get the body back. You can't, you know, doesn't matter what your religious belief is around how the body should be handled. We kept people from getting the bodies. All, none of it based in any sort of science um you know it, it reminds me there you know when we played a video some time back of uh nurse nicole siratek who took a moment in the middle of an er break that she was at in tears saying how inhuman they were being well she appeared at the senate hearing and and this is again her expressing just the incredible horror that is taking place inside of the hospitals in May of 2020, I was one of the original nurses that went to NYC to help with the COVID pandemic because the pandemic and the hysteria that was created from poor public health measures and poor execution of appropriate early intervention strategies and the handicapping of medical professionals doing their job has led to where we are right now and into the crisis situation that we are in. What we saw in these front lines, we knew what was happening. And when we asked for the ibuprofen, they said, no, it was contraindicated. When we asked, like, why aren't we giving them steroids? Oh, well, it's not. We we're just following orders. Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance. Now, while I was there and I saw that the pharmaceutical companies were rolling out remdesivir onto the patients, I tried to get a hold of the IRBs. I tried to get a hold of my appropriate chain of command. I tried CMS. I tried Department of Health. And they rolled out remdesivir onto a substantial number of patients for which we all saw it was killing the patients. And now it's the FDA-approved drug that is continuing to kill patients in the United States. Our level of healthcare has been deteriorated to substandard third world nation healthcare. Whereas I tell people you are better off in South America in a field hospital than you are in level one trauma designer hospitals in the United States. I've had patients that haven't been bathed, haven't been fed, haven't been given water, haven't been turned. And if you ask me, this isn't a hospital, this is a concentration camp. I mean, that's a very serious indictment, yet so many, you can see the doctors and nurses in the background all nodding their heads like this is true. I mean, is it, you know, hospitals have been reduced to, you know, you'd be better off in, in a, a third world, she called it a concentration camp. So, you know, I went through this experience myself with my dad and I found the nurse called me, said the doctors don't go in the room. So what do you mean the doctors don't go in the room? Well, you know, it's COVID. We don't go in the room. So. Doctors are not going into the room. If you think they are, they're not. They sit outside the room, they look at the numbers, and they walk, and then they go away. That's what's happening to people oh in the hospital. God. And, you know, if you can't go in and see them because you're um, going to maybe get COVID, they don't recognize it's a replication incompetent virus after about five or six days. And that's why you see the CDC change from 10 days down to five days because okay. it really is replication incompetent at that point. So there's no way to catch something. If you went in and you got particles on you, that's like getting a vaccine on you. You, know, you right. got pieces of the vaccine, basically pieces of the virus, dead body parts. So we have so many things that are just basically don't follow science. And then you have 
What's happened in the hospitals, we, I could never get to see my dad. He basically died without us seeing him. We had to do it on Zoom. Um, you know, this is... Uh, what is that moment like for a doctor? I mean, I mean, a regular, we, we're reading about all these articles, all these moments, all these papers, everything. People saying, I can't get to my family. But we don't know the hospital system. We don't know how it works. We just know this glass door and being held out. I can imagine that's frustrating. But for someone that moves in and out of hospitals, can say to someone, I'm a doctor myself. I want to see my father. And even you can't get in there? Uh, it was very frustrating. You know, the words, I knew I could. Okay, so I tried to think my dad's words were ringing in my ears. I'll be okay. Like, he's, 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 he feels comfortable with his passing. He feels he has strong faith. And, and he's like, I'll be okay. Like, I could see him saying, don't get in trouble for me. And, okay. and that was ringing in my ears. He didn't say that to me, but I knew that's what he would Got have it. said. Okay. And so, in some sense, I was literally wanting to go, knowing that if I did go, I'd probably have severe repercussions from it. Because no one else could go. Like, what makes me special that I can go? So, I didn't go. Um, it's very frustrating because I already knew that there's no way I can catch the virus because it's replication incompetent at that point. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that over and over again. When they're holding you out of the hospital, there's no reason. It, the virus, now you might get something else, mycoplasma or some other thing in the hospital, just like we always do when we go yeah. to the hospital. It's full of germs. And right. people don't know the hospital's full of germs. <laughs> yeah, good to know. <laughs> so. And it's true, right? I mean, it is truly one like it. And, and I, when I was working on the doctor's television show, they would say, and it's sort of a new philosophy, as soon as you can get out of the hospital, get out. Like it used to be hang out. Now, like get up, walk around. You just had a heart surgery. As soon as we can get, get out of here. We got MRSA sure. crawling on the walls, CREs everywhere. We don't want you to get infected. You got to get out of here. Doesn't matter how much Lysol we sprayed all over this place. We just can't seem to get ahead of it. Now, Nicole mentioned something, and I remember you really, and we don't have the clip, but you really got intense about the use of steroids. That, you know, there are treatments, and I don't understand this, that we would use almost in any other respiratory condition or situation where someone comes in, especially an unknown one, it starts with steroids, yet that is not allowed, or right? And what was, what's that? She said, we weren't using steroids when we know we could. So back in March 2020, I knew right away that when you got into the later phase after the first week, steroids would make a lot of sense because many conditions, the inflammation from the virus is what causes a lot of the problems. And we use steroids over and over and over again. And steroids reduce inflammation. They reduce swelling. They reduce inflammation. And they're a really important part of, of that process. They're probably the best drug. for. We have tons of drugs for inflammation. Steroids are hi historically been the best drug. And what they ended up using was really small doses of something called dexamethasone. So they're under treating. It's a disease of no treatment early and under treatment in the hospital where literally they give a puny six milligrams of dexamethasone. Solumedrol is better. We can go much higher. I typically at the end of a surgery, a small surgery, like if, if I did a small resection of something on the face here, I usually give eight milligrams and I do this about four to 500 a year where I always use eight milligrams of dexamethasone for a small resection on the face. I do that for the last 30 years yeah. at the end of the case to reduce the swelling a little bit. Right. Here they are as people, this is mass systemic disease and they're giving six milligrams. So I just, I what would, it out what would be the proper dosage? Well, first of all, I probably wouldn't use that, but I'd probably use like 20 okay. Q12 um, or 30 Q12, depending on the size of the person. So we sometimes go by sizes of the person. Sure. So sense. basically um, rather than six a day, I do three times twice, three times a dose, twice a day at least. So in a sense, they're way under treating with this. And that is the reason why you don't see people coming out of the hospital. 
because the drugs are not only are they not sequential, you know, if you hear Peter McCullough talk, sequential multi-drug cocktail. What that means is viruses and cancer cells are very similar. You need to attack them from multiple places. Yeah. So early in that first week, we attack the virus. But in the second and third and fourth week, we're attacking the inflammation. We're attacking the blood clotting. We're attacking the respiratory distress. So there's a sequence of things we do as the disease progresses. And each individual patient may have something a little different that we might want to tweak the formula. Right. Hello, that's how we practice. And you heard me say it on there. Yeah. It's called the practice of medicine for a reason because there's always something new. If you have somebody who's 220 pounds, diabetic, you know, five foot six, we might do it a little differently than someone who's, you know, five foot six and 110 pounds and 22 years old. Right. So every person is unique. And we know this. And they tried to pass this over that this disease affects everybody. Everybody's going to die. So many people haven't even come out of their house yet. So it's a, it's a scientific fraud. And our job and what you've done so well is bring that, bring that message to people. And thank you so much for all you have done. You're, you are a true scientist. When I listen to you sometimes, I'm like, oh, my God, Dell. Dell, did he go to medical school? I'm like, it's amazing. Well, we're so I want to thank you for that. I, well, I thank know you, you are. I, I thank you uh, for, for that compliment. Um, so w we had uh, Dr. Christina Parks on, on our show a month or two ago that we taped it. She came up to me um, before this hearing and said, I just want to let you know that my father was with me. He got to see me on the high wire and really uh, I lost him just a few days ago. She lost him just before having to do this hearing. And she said, I just want to thank you because that memory that I have of him seeing me on the high wire is an important memory. And it's one of the last memories I have. This is her talking about her own, how her own father was handled in the hospital. My dad just died. Right? He died Friday. Couldn't get a test. Couldn't get monoclonal antibodies. We treated him at home. Unfortunately, we had an oxygen machine that didn't work. So he blood saturation went down to the point where he was incoherent. We called the EMS. They said, your problem is your oxygen machine doesn't work. They put oxygen on him. He went to 98% saturation. We moved him to the hospital. He recovered all his cognitive functions. He was doing quite well, but he was no longer getting medications that reduce his inflammation. He was no longer getting medications that um, blocked the histamine response. He was no longer getting the medications that he needed, and he was no longer getting um, uh, you know, um, lung steroids, and uh, he just declined and declined and declined until he passed away on Friday. And I say he passed away from lack of appropriate care. Plug me a little bit on that. It's um, it's an incredible story she lays out there. Obviously, she's a doctor. I mean, she has the background. She can treat uh, her father at home, but they had an oxygen machine that they didn't realize wasn't working. So once they get him to the hospital, oxygen comes up. And you would think he just continue all the drugs they had were working. Obviously, the oxygen was the only thing that went wrong. And they're like, no way, no how. Uh, I want to talk about that. So yeah. what happens is they get in the hospital. They put him on oxygen. Then they think, well, let's get him something for anxiety. They give him some midazolam. They give him Presidex. It suppresses the respiratory depression. Before you know it, there's a, a, it's, like, it's like knocking dominoes over. And I'm going to tell you, if anybody looks and you have people in your family that have passed away in the hospital, I can tell you what happened. They got... <clears throat> they got Midazolam, they got Presidex, then they got Remdesivir, and it was basically a, a, knocking over dominoes all the way down so to the death store. psych drugs. Yeah, to, to get rid of the anxiety. This is very, very, very common. Almost every patient that I encounter. Absolutely unbelievable. Remdesivir, obviously you mentioned this is a failed Ebola drug. 
uh, was so toxic, they pulled it early from the Ebola trial, saying this is a complete failure. I sort of read that as you're better off dealing with Ebola than mess with this drug, and yet it gets repurposed for this situation. We'll talk about it in a second, but this is Paul Merrick, who is, as I said, an ICU uh, doctor for decades. His CV goes on and on and on. I believe he's credited with being the second most published ICU doctor in the world um, who was having a complete success treating his patients until the doctors told him he had to change his approach. Listen to this story. If you look at the four independent studies, including the large study by the WHO, it shows remdesivir increases the risk of death. Let me say that again. Remdesivir increases the risk of death by 3%. It increases your chances of renal failure by 20%. This is a toxic drug. But just to make the situation even more preposterous, the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if they prescribe remdesivir to Medicare patients. The federal government is incentivizing hospitals to prescribe a medication which is toxic. It should be noted that remdesivir costs about $3,000 a course. Ivermectin reduces the risk of death by about 50%. It costs the WHO two cents. Two cents. So as regards dexamethasone, this is the wrong drug in the wrong dose for the wrong duration of time. Yet every clinician in this country will absurdly use this homeopathic dose of dexamethasone. Why? Because the NIH tells them to do this. The NIH and other agencies have ignored on multiple FDA-approved drugs. These are FDA-approved drugs. These are not experimental drugs, which are cost-effective and safe and have unequivocally, unequivocally been shown to reduce the death of patients in the ICU and in hospital. You are more likely to die from taking Tylenol than Ivermectin, yet the FDA calls this a dangerous horse deworming medicine. Hospitals have become dangerous places for sick people. Patients must do whatever they can to avoid the hospital. When they imprisoned in a hospital, they denied their rights. They are not allowed a patient advocate. Their family are denied access to the patient. They are prisoners in the system. They have no rights and they get the treatment dictated by the hospital. They are dangerous places for sick people. And that's, for me, as a physician practicing hospital medicine for 40 years, saddens me to the core. I can tell you what happened to me. So I was using our protocol to treat critically ill patients in the ICU with a whole host of repurposed drugs. I then, this is a memo, this is a memo sent to the entire healthcare system, but they targeted me personally. 
And what did this memo say? These medications will not be verified or dispensed for the prevention or treatment of COVID. This list includes ivermectin, bicalutamide, etopsicide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. And then just to stick it to me, they added ascorbic acid. What was I to do? My hands were tied. As a clinician for the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I could not treat patients the way I had to be to treat patients. I had seven COVID patients, including a 31-year-old woman. I was not allowed to treat these people. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. I then tried to sue the system, and you know what they did? They did something called peer sham review. It is a disgusting and evil concept. They then accused me of seven most outrageous crimes that I had committed, and that I was such a severe threat to the safety of patients, they immediately suspended my hospital privileges because I possessed and posed such an outright threat to these patients, ignoring the fact that under my care, the mortality was 50%, those of my colleagues. So here I was standing up for patients' rights, and this hospital, this evil hospital, ended my medical career. So that's what they do. It's an outright outrage. It's evil to the core. When people question, you know, why I use terms like Nuremberg trials and I look at the, you know, smarmy Chris Hayes and these people referencing doctors like this, one of the most decorated doctors in the history of the world losing his job because he was having a success rate 50 percent better than everyone else around him. No one asked, what are you doing? They took his tools away and forced him to watch his patients die. I'm sure there was some heated conversations in those hospitals that led to his uh, losing his job. You know, this is it's it's so powerful. I mean, to feel you can feel his care for his patients. Uh, I'm still a little choked up about it. Um... You know, we all went through this. Um, I remember back in even March 2020 <clears throat> when uh, I was like, how can I was talking to people on the medical board and I was like, we can't let people die without treatment. I was just I, I was completely appalled. Mm -hmm. And I, that's how I ended up on social media. I literally talked to my wife and I said, look, I I know how to do drug design. I know how to do this stuff. And I go, if I don't speak up, I, I don't know who is. And so. I mean, of all I, the I people was, in there, you have an understanding of the inner works of the FDA, how a drug gets approved. Why, why is that you have that sort of special? So I did um, nine years in a lab, and I invented an FDA-approved uh, wound healing drug um, uh, that uh, basically, um, you know, it's, it's not that easy to do it. And, and um, at the end of the day, uh, the companies end up, the pharmaceutical companies end up doing a lot of the work. But the original patent and design, all the, all the intellectual side of it was all done by me. Um, at the end of the day, I do that over and over and over again as we go through practice. And a lot of other doctors um, are always problem solving. You're a critical thinker. And the critical thinking comes in when you, when you go into medicine, like, okay, this is inflammatory, this is cardiac, this is pulmonary, and you start grouping things into categories, and then you come up with solutions for each and every one of those things. That's medicine. 
And we weren't doing that. We were just like novel virus. I was like novel. There's 63, you know, I, I work with, I'll tell you this, like when I looked at it, I was like, okay, how many, how many, how many things could affect uh, uh, coronavirus? In about two hours, I found like eight things that might affect it. This is back in early March. And so within a very short period of time, I said, well, here's some tools for the toolbox. I didn't know if they're going to work, but it was clear that they had worked against SARS and MERS. And so these are other coronaviruses with 78% similarity. And I thought, well, it's worth a try to at least give these drugs a try. But at the very least, we got to treat the inflammation. We got to treat the blood clotting. We got to treat the respiratory demise. That's not hard at all. We already have all those drugs. We don't have to invent anything new. So that's why I said, and, and it shook me up kind of hearing him because he knows how to be a doctor in the ICU. You address each and every problem in a, in a unique way. Sometimes you don't, but you have, a, you have tools in the toolbox and you pull them out when you need them. And that is how we've always practiced medicine. And this current, this current corporate practice, this current, I don't even know what to say about it, this current system we now have is so corrupt that I, I just shocking uh, some of those older guys. We, we're just can't believe we're sitting here having to let patients languish and die at home or languish and die in the hospital with puny doses of dexamethasone and an antibiotic and a drug that's a molnupiravir and remdesivir, old nucleoside analogs. These drugs are from the 1950s. They put a little bow tie on it. This is not creativity, Dell. These are not creative thoughts. This is old nucleoside analogs from the 1950s. They're mutation drugs. They mutate your mitochondria. They mutate every single cell in your body if it's replicating, including like cancer cells. So that's why they're old, they're old cancer drugs, and they use them for viruses. So it's, it's killing viruses, killing cancer cells, killing, killing your normal cells, your mitochondria especially. So this is what we're left with. It's a shame, and I, I just can't believe it. But we are going to reinvent, and that's what you're leading yeah. the world to. That's what we're doing now, our, our doctor group. We're going to go through messaging. We're going to form our own Medscape. I can't wait to have that press release. It's going to happen real soon. We're going to reinvent telehealth. We're going to reinvent urgent and, and, and ambulatory care. And we're going to form you know, hospitals and surgery centers. This has to stop, and we're going to, we're going to work hard to make it stop. I agree with you in the, in the high wire, and I know other groups like ours will do everything we can to help make that dream a reality. We need to do it for ourselves. This isn't about helping you or helping. This is about our future. When you have one of the greatest ICU doctors that ever lived saying hospitals are dangerous places for sick people, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem. I want to step into the vaccine discussion now. Um, there's a lot of conversations about the vaccine, but one of the questions would be, what is in this thing? I mean, for doctors that are trying to figure out, what am I dealing with? If I have an injury, I need, to, I need to know how to treat it. I need to know what it is. This is a brand new technology that's never been injected, in, in, in my understanding, into any animal other than human beings. Never went through animal trials. It's sort of raised to gene therapy that's been, you know, turned into a vaccine and whatever it is. This is Dr. David Weissman exactly complaining about exactly this. Why can't we find out what is in it? In every single drug in package insert, you see a chemical structure, don't, do you not? There is a chemical structure. We need to know the exact chemical structure, the exact <coughs> sequence of the RNAs and the DNAs in these vaccines, right. okay? They are being withheld from us. FDA needs to show us what those structures are. I mean, you can imagine the frustration of that. Well, who might know what's in it? Perhaps, you know, one of the guys that's really sort of leading this, we're trying to figure it out himself, but has some understanding of the background. Why? Because he invented it. This is Dr. Robert Malone talking about one of the issues he's very concerned about, fertility. These lipid nanoparticles go all over the body, just as Richard is saying, and 
oddly, they seem to differentially go to ovaries and bone marrow, but ovaries relative to testes. And it's important everybody kind of latches onto this and they say, oh, there's spike protein in the ovaries. No, that's not what they measured. They didn't ever measure spike protein. What they measured was the lipid component, these synthetic lipids, which is the other thing you didn't mention in this cocktail, okay? These synthetic lipids go to ovaries. Now, who cares? Well, when your child is born, when your daughter is born, she has all the eggs she's ever gonna have in her ovaries. And we do know that, and the CDC now finally acknowledges after women all over the world complaining about their alterated, altered menses and getting, I mean, it was, a, it was I felt like I was in the mid, mid 20th century. It was attributed to hysteria, much as your own story. These alterations in menstruation were, were, were believed to represent hysterical women. The CDC is now acknowledging it. The thing is that the ovary um, drives menstruation, as Ryan will, I'm sure, attest. Hormonally, the ovary drives menstruation. When we're seeing alterated, altered and menstrual cycles, we're seeing the, the phenomena of postmenopausal women starting to bleed. That's a hallmark that something's going on in the ovaries. And we know that these lipids are going to the ovaries. We know that these are synthetic abnormal fats that insert into membranes and change the charge of cell surfaces. That's all true. And unfortunately, apparently, the FDA made a determination that they would treat these products using their standard checklist approach for a standard vaccine. And they did not use the checklist that they would use for gene therapy. And furthermore, they didn't make any special accommodation for the novel nature of this technology, which has not been previously characterized. And so what we end up with is the FDA making a decision to move forward with a data package that's grossly inadequate. We have a clear trail of breadcrumbs about reproductive toxicity that's not being followed up. And I am concerned about our children. I'm concerned about all of those effects. Brain, heart, blood coagulation, reproductive system, immunologic system, and furthermore, they're not at risk for this virus. Why are we doing this? And, and mandating these vaccines for children just breaks my heart. It's, I mean, it's impossible for me to wrap my head around the fact that this guy is not on every news channel in the country and in the world. This is a man who knows what he's talking about. He so clearly understands, he works somewhat like you do. He's worked with the FDA, he's worked with the Department of Defense. He knows what it takes to, he works on repurposing drugs. He knows he was part of designing this drug, this vaccine, this gene therapy as he calls it. I and mean, we get attacked for calling it a gene therapy, it's a vaccine. I mean, here you have the inventor himself. How do you explain? I mean, I know you're not in media, but it does it boggle your mind that when the inventor comes out and says, I think we have a problem here. These, these lipid particles are showing up in the in the ovaries. And that means the baby, the, these little girls, you're going to give this to a little girl, a child, whatever it's doing in her ovaries, it's permanently, it could per permanently be causing damage that will affect her ability and fertility, perhaps in her future or generations to come. And yet, all they do is sit there and giggle and smirk on these news agencies uh, that some, you know, 
out there, you know, guy that doesn't know what he's talking about. It's so inappropriate, Del. It's so inappropriate. <clears throat> Lipid nanoparticles have been used for other things, and Robert is absolutely, Robert Malone, is, as you said, he, if he can't speak about this, who can? Right. He's invented this technology. He knows it intimately, and, <clears throat> and it, it's just... We have the Pfizer biodistribution data, which you know about, which shows it goes to the bone marrow, it's going to the ovaries, it's going, it's going to the brain. It's not in that. It's not in that. He mentioned it in a, in a backwards way. Yeah. When you're doing a drug design, you have to look at brain uh, accumulation. With the vaccine, you don't. Because guess what? Vaccines don't usually go to the brain. All right. I tell people like, a normal vaccine um, can't get out of the room unless you open the door. But a lipid nanoparticle encased vaccine could slip under the door cracks. They're like garlic. I mean, isn't it technically everywhere. designed to do that? I mean, isn't the it's technically purpose? designed that way. So, so for the audience, if you haven't heard it, lipid nanoparticles, one of the things we were trying to do was get um, lipid nanoparticles to carry chemotherapeutic agents to the brain. It's one of the things you was good about them was like maybe we could direct chemo to the brain without having to do intrathecal therapy, spinal tap to okay. the brain. Okay. Right. So that's what they were used for. But guess what happened with lipid nanoparticles? They ended up with the, the ovaries. They ended up in the bone marrow. They ended up in places we really didn't want them to go. We don't want to carry chemo to the, to the ovaries or, or the bone. Got it. All right. So this is when they first were designed, I, I knew right away they were going to go to the brain and the bone marrow and the ovaries because that's what lipid nanoparticles do. And guess what? How many uh, ACE2 receptors are in the ovaries? A lot. Is it going to create inflammation? Yes, it is. So we need to be cautious, very cautious in giving this to young women Women are born with the amount of eggs that they have from a very young, from the time of birth. So, yeah. any age that you give it is going to potentially create massive inflammation in the ovaries. Potentially, I'm thankful to say that I hope that that doesn't happen. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be cautiously optimistic and say that I pray that it doesn't happen. But to not look at this scientifically, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. It's the it's it's I can't even believe that OBs are actually recommending this to pregnant women. We never recommend it. That's another area. So you have young women of childbearing age getting a product that causes inflammation in their ovaries, taking this drug, and you have women who are pregnant taking this. I've never seen this in medicine, never, never. Because of the thalidomide scare, we've always been very careful with- Thalidomide being the drug that was given for morning sickness, I understand, and right. then the babies ended up being born missing limbs and things like that. We so. never give this to pregnant women because of that. Right. Thalidomide scare, where they had massive amounts of women having uh, babies that were significantly um, had loss of limbs. And that way, that's still, if you just look at the pictures, if you haven't seen them, go look on there. You'll see the pictures. You'll see why this came about. We don't give pregnant women new products. How many pregnant women were in the Pfizer and Moderna trials? It was a really small number. I, I, I don't remember because sometimes it's it, less than 100. Yeah. Um, and um, the one thing that wasn't in the trials, they never allowed a person who um, had already had COVID into the trials. None of the trials um, had a patient in there with somebody who already had COVID. So okay. if you had COVID, you're not in there. So they went out of their way to kind of exclude pregnant women. But of course, some people found out they were pregnant while they were in the trial and exclude people who had COVID recovered. And they did that for a reason. They didn't want the bad outcomes that would likely come from, from right. giving a new product to those groups. Next, we have an issue that we've spoken about on the show with Ryan Cole, who is a pathologist, has looked at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, I guess, cases of cancer and everything else. And this is what he has to say about vaccines and cancer. 
I do about 40,000 biopsies a year. I'm, I'm a busy pathologist. And I thought, gosh, I'm seeing more of this type of cancer and this type of cancer and this type of cancer. And so I've tried to talk to other laboratories and aggregate a bigger data set, which obviously these federal data sets are a very easy way to see that signal. Obviously, I've been canceled, I've been ridiculed, I've been uh, maligned, et cetera, for saying so, but I've been observing it. And I can't deny observation. That's how science happens initially through observation. So we have genes in our body. We have mechanisms in our body. We have bad cells in our body every day. Our body says, oh, I can kill that, knock it off, you know, shake hands with every cell. You're gone. You're gone. You're a bad cell. There are genes. There are suppressor genes. P53, it's the guardian of our genome. There's another breast cancer gene, BRCA gene. We know that the spike protein binds to the receptors for these genes and can activate them. That is a mechanism of the spike protein. So putting this spike protein in the human body via a, a gene shot that is completely investigational, these are not approved, and to mandate something that's investigational that can bind to cancer. And now when we travel with these groups and summits, I have oncologists, I have radiation oncologists, I am seeing an uptick in cancers. I'm seeing these odd stable cancers take off like wildfires after the vaccines. It is happening. We need federal funding. The NIH isn't looking at this. Getting a grant to look at anything related to the vaccines is next to impossible. I get this sense as I was sort of listening to these, you listen to these specialists, they got a cancer specialist, they have a heart doctor, I mean, all these specialists, you know, the vaccine makers are virologists, right, and immunologists, they make it back, they understand one part of it, but if the thing starts causing cancer, they don't know what the hell that means, that well, BRCA gene, what is that, what is that to a vaccine maker? So you have like this totally uneducated group on what all the issues that are now being created by the vaccine they made, and yet the specialists are now saying, now this vaccine has just jumped into my area of expertise and I need to speak about what I'm seeing. And the news is saying, well, we side with the immunologists or the ones that made the vaccine on this. And this is just a crazy person. It's not a crazy person. This is a specialist that knows exactly what he's talking about. He's saying we're seeing a rise in cancer. And I mean, I'm hearing this all over the country that people are seeing this rise in strange cancers and return of cancers of those that were in remission. So my background is at one of the best cancer hospitals in the world for, for, for as the chief there. So, you know, I have a big background there too. And this is a very scary thing. It's blocking the guardian of the genome, P53. The spike is going into the nucleus and binding up something that whenever your DNA um, <clears throat> uh, is made, it basically sometimes breaks apart and makes rearrangements. And sometimes those rearrangements make mutations. And the P53 makes sure that those mutations are fixed. And, and it's a repair. It's a, it's a tumor. It's a mutation repair gene, basically. Okay. And BRCA also. So that's what these are doing. And the interfering with those is going to make a lot of mutations, potentially make a lot of cancer cells. And so, as he said, we literally need to see the data from big databases like the VA and other federal databases. In, in my own clinic, where we have a huge number of patients, over 300,000 a year, um, basically we see, we've seen a big uptick in, uh, in Bell's palsy and in shingles. Um, so we're seeing the tumor, the, the immune surveillance system, which takes care of cancer and viruses, is definitely being affected by this virus. I mentioned it earlier, P53 and uh, BRCA, the two uh, tumor suppressor genes, and then the toll-like receptors, which involve immune surveillance of these viruses running around yeah. our body. These are things 
that we all have to deal with, and they should be being looked at. And instead, the CDC stopped tracking data May of last year. Um, there's no reason for that. They're spending $27 billion giving it to Pfizer. We need some data for the research. We need autopsies. We need, we need, we need the ability to track this so we can help people, so we can... And we're going to do it. We're going to do it without it. We're doing it now. We, we get together. Ryan and I were talking the last two nights about how we can start collecting more data on the cancer side. Of things. If we see just a dramatic rise in cancer, let's, let, let's be extreme about it. Let's say cancer doubles, you know, um, in 2022, 23. Do you think that that will be detected? Um, and is it possible for them to cover that up and how will they cover that up if it happens? So, so great thing. I mean, you look at what just happened, that insurance company, the, the actuaries came up with the data. I don't know if you talked about it on yeah. the show. But basically, it they, again, though. Yeah, so it came by accident. We ended up finding out that, um, that in this one insurance company, 40% more deaths. A 10% rise would be a 1 in 200 year phenomenon. A 40% rise is, you know, one in a million or so. I believe that it's, was the age group 18 to 64, if I remember correctly, for 40% rise the in The productive people, working people of the world, 18 to 64. So you're looking at the most, the most driving the economy. These people are dying. These are highly insured people, most of them. So what you're finding is that data is being collected and, and it accidentally got slipped out. So that's how we're going to have to get this data. They're not going to voluntarily look for it. They're not looking. So it's going to be hidden. I don't know if you were listening uh, yesterday. You were there uh, on, on, on Monday when they said that the data was changed. I don't know if you've talked about that on the show. Hmm. But they actually took the data from the federal database. And actually, when they went back to look, um, they found it had been altered from you know just the look they had from two months ago. So instead of being like 784 it was down to a smaller number. Oh, yeah. Just cases being removed, things being removed. Yeah, from things the were being pools. removed. So, it's... you know, we're going to find out because eventually, um, you know, people die. Enough people die. You're going to you're going to know. But it's going to be a tra it's already a tragedy and we have to prevent it from being a bigger tragedy. That's why the positive message is we're we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. We've got a group of doctors, 17,000 now, and we're going to get more on board. Hopefully it'll be 30 and 40 and 50, yeah. and we'll grow the movement and we'll, we'll pr prevent it. They're using physicians like they did in Nazi Germany to say those people are eugenics. They're not good people. Let's get rid of them. Um, and they're using us to do the same thing again to turn us into the vaxxed and unvaxxed, the, the, you know, the bad versus the good. They're using our profession and we're going to stand up against it. And we need more doctors. If you're a doctor out there, a nurse, we need to stand up against it. We need to do this together. This is Peter McCullough talking about the academic fraud that's taking place. The CDC in the last few days said there's five more papers showing the vaccines, even with Omicron, are associated with the reduction in hospitalization. But it's only in U.S. hospitals. Not in South Africa, not right. in Germany, not in Denmark, not in the UK, and not in Israel. Americans should be asking the question, why are the vaccines only working against hospitalization, but they don't work against binary occurrence of the respiratory illness or reduced spread, and they don't reduce mortality, but why do they only reduce hospitalization? And by the way, they reduce hospitalization in most studies in the United States by 85%. How does that happen? That is basically academic fraud. 
And this is something we're talking about today. We're looking at data that's coming in. We're now seeing in Scotland increased risk of infection amongst those receiving the vaccines. And it, and it sort of gets worse. One dose, you know, it's about a third is, you know, more. And then by two doses of the vaccine, twice the amount of infection, twice the amount of, of these conditions. So clearly, yet here in America, we're being told, oh, no, no, the vaccine is working great. We see studies all over seeing a rise in death. We're seeing in, in multiple cases where the, the people dying that were vaccinated from COVID are being put in the unvaccinated category. Yet here in the United States of America, we're still, still hearing pandemic of the unvaccinated, even though they're back Backing that away in Canada because they know the data is now showing that that's not true. They're backing away. Um, I believe it was in Germany, admitting health minister saying sorry, clerical error or, or computer error. As it turns out, we overblew this unvaccinated problem. But here in America, where we're supposed to have the greatest hospital system in the world, the greatest, we're the home of Microsoft and Apple, and here is the place where our data seems more corrupted than everybody everywhere else. And what he's saying here, it's not possible. We can't look at data coming from all over the world. Same people, two arms, two legs, same vaccines being used, breathing the same air circulating the planet. They can't be having totally different results than we're having here. Is that is that what he's getting to? I, it is so true. And I, I don't even know what to say to it other than to say to point out, thankfully, Scotland and England are actually giving us real data where we see that the vaccinated are dying in higher numbers right now. And yeah. if you look at the per hundred thousand. I mean, this is what we're seeing. And of course, we have to look at that to see why. Why? We want to help people. Yeah. We want to help the vaccinated people. We want right. to help the unvaccinated. We, we want to help everybody. And the only way we could do that is to have honest information and transparency. So as we go forward, if we don't get that, we should all be upset. Not just the vaccinated yeah. people, unvaccinated people. All of us ought to be. Why can't we get real information? And thankfully, we have some so that we can at least yeah. draw attention to it and say, look, this is really happening. And I just can't believe how, how arrogant they are. How, I mean, it's, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm still in shock about it almost every day when I, when I literally come in and I see them go on TV and say 99% of the people in the hospital are unvaccinated. And, and I, to, bring, to your point, um, Pierre Corey talked about this. What we're seeing is if you're vaccinated, a lot of those people in the ICU are said vaccination status unknown unknown. Mm -hmm. And let me say, I had one nurse and I, uh, she wanted to do Project Veritas. I said, don't do it. You're just going to get destroyed. <laughs> but 16 of 17 people were vaccinated, listed as vaccination status unknown in the hospital in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Wow. 16 of 17. So Dr. Peter McCullough, who is a heart specialist that's what he has written more articles on it and been published on this more than anyone in the world so when he starts describing the issue of myocarditis and what is happening here i would listen there are great unknowns with respect to the vaccines uh their mechanism of action and uh, disease categories like cancer uh, but there is a disease category upon which the FDA, the CDC, and all stakeholders agree that the vaccines cause, and that's myocarditis or heart inflammation. And I will tell you, as a cardiologist, it is crystal clear that these vaccines cause myocarditis. We now have over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on myocarditis, Sadly, showing the rates of myocarditis are far in excess of what the CDC ever imagined. It is clear the risks of the vaccines are far greater 
than the risks of COVID-19. I'm telling you as a specialist, myocarditis is not mild. There are papers by Shower and by now by Trong at University of uh, Utah at Salt Lake. When they do MRI on these individuals with suspected myocarditis, 100% are having heart damage. There is uh, the father of a boy here in this room who's died of myocarditis. One death is too many. One. One. We have 21,000 cases of myocarditis and climbing in the United States that the CDC has verified. One was too many. Under no circumstances, under any circumstances, should a young person ever receive one of these vaccines, let alone ever be pressured to receive a vaccine, let alone ever be mandated to take a vaccine. Every time I see a Facebook post with someone saying, look at my young five-year-old just did what was right, got her vaccine, or he got his vaccine, he's doing his part for America. Like I just, something, some part of me inside like dies. I feel the same. As I, as I, as I think about the greatest heart doctor in the world, what he's saying here. Nobody should be getting this thing. How did the CDC approve this thing? I mean, this to me, this is this is what starts stacking up as, as crimes against humanity. You are, you know, the studies show that myocarditis, he says there's no there's no mild case of myocarditis. Many of the studies show that within 10 years, 50 percent of those that suffer myocarditis will be dead. I mean, is that what I mean, the, think of that future for these children that had zero risk from this disease. I mean, what you're seeing over and over from the doctors, we've seen patients gasping for breath. We're there with them, treating them. And you feel that when you're with, with a person, you're trying to save their life. And I mean, this, this is why Peter's emotional. He's seen it happen. And this is why Merrick sat and watched seven people die. This, with your hands tied behind your back, it's, it's, Literally should not be happening. And no one, no one is rising up for these children. No one's rising up for these people. And that is the heart of why, why we're here. And that's the heart of why we, we want to keep going forward. Because we are letting people down. We are letting people be like fed to slaughter. We are feeding people to slaughter with this vaccine. This vaccine is not safe for children. And what Peter said, you know, mechanistically, a lipid nanoparticle goes through tight junctions. We talked about it with the brain just mm -hmm. a few minutes ago. The heart basically has pretty tight junctions too. It slips, the lipid nanoparticle slips through and gets to the pericytes on the outside of the cell walls, which have a lot of ACE2 receptors. The virus doesn't do that. The virus, remember I told you the virus has to have the door open. So the lipid nanoparticle does not. That's why the virus is not as bad on myocarditis as the lipid nanoparticle because the lipid nanoparticle gets through to where all the ACE2 receptors are on the pericytes. And that is the reason why we're seeing such a high rise in myocarditis in these children, because the, the tight junctions get a little bit um, loosened up with exercise. And so at the end of the day, there's mechanisms and there's data. And the data is one in, about at least one in 2,700 of these kids are getting myocarditis. It is not mild. The tissue repair, wound healing, scarring, with my background, it doesn't come back. They don't come back. It's scar tissue. You know, Chris Hayes talks with somebody mentions the, the athletes, the over 100 athletes that have plunged face first into the 
pitch, but there's a quote in an article. We have a video that keeps going. We take out those once we find out whether they're vaccinated or not. But I can't remember a time in history. I cannot. And it's been our question here. We're not saying the vaccine's causing these people to grab their hearts. These soccer players, many of them tennis players, football players, plunge face forward onto the grass. But what we are saying is, when do you ever remember seeing videos like this, seeing stories like this in the numbers that we're seeing them all at the same time that, you know, what Peter McCullough is saying is true. They have admitted these vaccines cause, you know, blood clots, thrombocyte opinion, myocarditis, pericarditis. Is it really that hard to think that this forced vaccination program and athletes all around the world could be having a detrimental effect, especially to those that are maybe, you know, highly strenuous um, athletes? So think about what we're talking about here. We have you and Senator Johnson arranging groups of doctors, not the FDA and the CDC and the right. NIH. How does that make sense? How are they not doing autopsies? Right. How is it they don't care? It, it's crazy. This, all these people are dying. Where, where, are the, where are the groups of doctors trying to figure out the scientists saying, let's find out. Let's do the autopsies. Let's find out what happened. Let us, let us try really hard. Let's all group together. We can beat this together. That's how we do things. We're human beings. We're social constructed groups. We go in groups. And that's why we form groups. And that's why you're bringing us together. Mm -hmm. Because you know together we're going to be stronger. Exactly. And at the end of the day, this makes no sense. And we've got to come up with a way to fight back. And the only way we fight back is by grouping ourselves together and, and saying, we're going to do the autopsies. We're going to find the data. We're going to do our own studies. We're going to collect our own information. And then we're going to publish. And we're going to critically think. And we're going to make, a, a, we're going to make changes as we go. Oh, this virus um, right now has changed enough. Well, we're not going to use dutasteride anymore because it's not binding TMPRSS2. We're going to make changes as we go because, again, the practice of science is not just cut in stone. It changes constantly. And as so the virus the is changing constantly, as the, you know, the entire disease representation constantly changing. It's so obvious. Well, it wouldn't be right to not give um, a moment for Senator Ron Johnson, who has really put his neck on the, out on the line of this. I mean, I didn't see any senators in the room. It's shocking. He's not surrounded by a body of senators that are all saying, hey, man, I'm here. I'd love to hear what you got. Hopefully, they're watching on a feed somewhere else. But he's out there all alone, and this is a little bit of what he had to say. These are real-world experiences from people that are on the front lines, that are treating patients. And it's different from probably anything you've heard, unless you've been following these people in the media, trying to break through, trying to convey the American public and provide the information that I think we all need, that we all deserve. Um, now, you know, my antenna is always up because I'm getting accused of spreading mis misinformation all the time. So I can imagine how the news media is going to treat so much of this. They're going to, they're going to pick little phrases out, and they're going to pick it apart, and they're going to try and marginalize this entire event. This shouldn't have been necessary. As our information grew, as we became better and better educated, less ignorant about the coronavirus, COVID, the COVID vaccines, this, this, should, this should have been made public every step along the way, but it wasn't. So again, I'm, I'm just asking the viewing public to have an open mind, respect these individuals who have paid a significant price, professionally, reputationally. 
these are highly qualified individuals. They speak from experience. We've got to fix this problem. We can't let this continue. We can't let it happen in the future. I mean, we were just saying it, you know, and one of the things that I say to people is that, you know, um, I might be jaded. I'm a journalist. You know, I've always investigated stories where malfeasance is taking place. I tend to say people, especially large corporations that make billions of dollars, they lie. They cheat. They're there to make money. They're there to pay off their stockholders. And pharma is no different. You know, just like when, you know, Shell Oil spills, you know, unbelievable amounts of oil. They don't just call up and say, hey, come and help us. Let's work on this. Let's fix this. They try to hide it. Like a kid with their hand in the cookie jar from the moment, you know, there's something about human beings. Our nature is to just lie about it. Okay. I can accept that. That's what a corporation does. What is so shocking right now is that we know that that's what corporations do. We know these pharmaceutical industries pay out billions of dollars for having lied about the safety of their products. Then they get caught. We're able to sue them and get to the bottom. We can't sue this product. We cannot sue. It's being protected. We cannot get to this information. And the one group that is supposed to be monitoring and watchdogging this, the FDA, the CDC, the National Institute of Health, Health and Human Services, they're supposed to be protecting us. And in every situation here, as you said, they're not doing autopsies. They could care less. They're not looking, they're, they're looking at 22,000 deaths now on bears and saying, well, that's our system, but we don't trust it because we never decided to make one that we actually trusted it works. Even though when they say it's, you know, has no, it's, uh, it's inefficient at, at, at capturing data, it's never been to the positive side. No one has ever done a study and said bears is over-reporting the issues. Every single investigation of bears says it's under-reporting. Between 10% to you know, 100% under-reporting. 22,000 deaths by most estimates means there's got to be at least 200,000 people that have died. And it could be as high as 2 million if Harvard Medical School's investigation was correct. When you, when you think about this as a doctor, you've been in the FDA situation. You had to get through that FDA gauntlet. Has the FDA changed or has it always been this totally corrupt and captured? The capturing has gotten more and more uh, over the last two decades. And I would say that there's a lot of barriers to entry and it's very hard. If you want to get a drug through back in the 1990s, you would spend six, seven hundred million dollars to get it through. It's a lot of barriers to entry. So it's always been a big money game. So I, I'm not shocked and surprised. Part of me would say, gosh, Dell, if, if, if remdesivir was amazing and saved everybody's lives for $3,000, I would have I looked the other way, honestly. I wouldn't be here fighting because they were saving lives. Right. At the end of the day, I wouldn't be here. I'm here because we have data now. What I love is the truth comes out. Data from the insurance company, 40% more deaths from 18 to 64. Hello, we know. Yeah, we know there's something there. That's a smoking gun. The Veers data, not it's blowing away every other year. Yeah. You know, it's blowing it away. So there's there's plenty of plenty of uh, crumbs sitting around to tell us, you know, the fact that Harvard, the head of Harvard CV still has his job after putting out a complete lie is. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Head of Harvard CV, Lancet, you know, putting out fake papers. These are things that we've, they, there's, nobody's afraid. They're just out and out lying to the public and controlling the complete media the whole time. So here we are yeah. because we're a small force. But you can see, and I know you know, 30, 40% of the people are woke up to the point they're listening. Yep. And those are the ones we're going to talk to. And we're going we're gonna to go for the other 
60 percent, 70 percent. We're going to bring everybody in, but we've got to start with hot coals. We've got to start with the people who are on fire to learn the truth. And at the end of the day, you know, we've got to we've got to go against this complete corruption because it's real and it's big. And I'm right. sure that we're targets in some way. You for sure. Um, me, I'm pretty small. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're bringing truth. And we're so thankful for what you're doing. Like, I can't thank you enough. I, I can't. Well, speaking of hot fire and corruption, I think the person probably encapsulated the sort of internal rage and frustration you're probably feeling at home. And certainly these doctors that are finding themselves in the middle of it are feeling this is, I'm going to give the last word from this event to Pierre Corey. I'm, I'm sorry to have to do this. I feel like a broken record, but I'm listening to my colleagues call out all of the inanities, the insanities, the absurdities, okay? These departures of our policies from what we know are to be scientific truths. These things like denial of natural immunity. We have to understand why. To sit here and point fingers and they're doing this wrong and that wrong, why are they doing this? There could be multiple reasons. The simplest and most easily understandable and provable is every vaccine, every these these you know, these novel patented high cost drugs is profits. They are putting profits ahead of patients. You know, we can call attention to all of these policies. They are non-scientific. They are, they're failing at having scientific support, yet they're being carrying out and they're being distributed across the country. And, and doctors and states and health departments are willingly accepting these without question, without critical thinking. And that's what I want us to be clear that we're calling attention to today. This is corruption, plain and simple. It's corruption. Sorry. I, so, so. I love him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love Dr. Pierre Corey, his passion. You know, as we sort of close this up, you, you guys, are, what is, first of all, what is the best way to track all the work that frontline doctors, like, is there a website? You know, just, so... Uh, our current group, this International yeah. Alliance of Physicians and Scientists, we're yeah. putting out stuff on Global COVID Summit. Of course, Pierre was doing the FLCCC, but he's a core founding member of the group. Okay. And so we are, we are trying to coordinate ourselves to do more, which is like I was just saying, we're going to go into information. That's important. We have to have a place where people can go, and it's not run by a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Medscape is run by a pharmaceutical company. WebMD is run by a pharmaceutical company. We're going to have a, a messaging. We're going to come out. The, the, the press release will be here. Then we're going to go and do telehealth where we can come and you have trusted doctors. They're not going to care if you're vaxxed or <clears throat> standing upside down or whatever you are. Right. They're going to they're take care of you. And then move into more of the ambulatory care and then move into hospitals. And then we're going to get into supply chain side. We're going to keep growing the system because, like you said, we have to reinvent. We're going to do it. We can, we can do it, and we're going to do it. We have a great team to start with. Well, this is how it happens, right? This is what change takes. It's a birth. You sort of have to have the old die and the new begins. And so, you know, I really appreciate being around. You guys I feel so blessed and honored to get to spend this time with you, the time that we all, you know, had in D.C., and I look forward to future events to come. And I am hopeful. I am hopeful. It is great to see guys like yourself Finally talking about natural immunity again. I think that there's a, a place, there's a, you know, a, a coming together of different thoughts, of different modalities, and a future to medicine and science that is so exciting. If we can get past what I call these Neanderthals of medicine that are clinging to their relevance in, in, in a dying perspective. 
uh, and we've got to get it, we've got to pry medicine back out of the hands of bureaucrats. Uh, these are not people that we vote for. We cannot have health departments deciding whether we get to work our jobs or whether we can breathe the air. And as you pointed out so well, I have never gone to the CDC or the FDA or the NIH for any question. Um, I want to thank you for answering our questions today. It's really been spectacular, right? Thanks, Del. Right. Appreciate you. All right. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Um, look, if you're watching the show, I know many of you, you know, and it's beautiful. When we get attacked in all these articles, one of the great side effects is that new voices and, and new eyes and new hearts come to us and say, I, I want to check out what was being attacked. What is it they're so afraid of? Well, maybe you've been injured by a vaccine. Maybe you took those vaccines. It's okay. Everyone has their moment, as I said at the beginning of the show, that wakes them up. But if you need help and you're trying to deal with that injury, we'd like to help. And so we've decided a program to get involved. If you or a loved one has been injured after receiving a COVID-19 vaccine, including if you are a participant in a clinical trial, go to injuredbycovidvaccine.com. Submissions are confidential. We are here to help provide support, including connecting with medical specialists and potentially securing legal representation. To assure the safety of COVID-19 vaccines for everyone, it is imperative that every person injured by this product report their injury. We can provide assistance completing a report to the CDC's Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. So, if you or a loved one has suffered an injury from a COVID-19 vaccine, go to InjuredByCovidVaccine.com now. Well, it's been, a, it's been an incredibly powerful and deep and scientific show today. Once again, it'll probably be one of our longest. I want to remind you that, you know, we do this show every Thursday. Uh, we could probably break these shows up into multiple days across the week, but that would take a team 100 times as big as what we have in order to vet and make sure we're getting the stories right, which is why we've decided to cover everything we have to cover on Thursday. But immediately, as soon as we're finished with the show today, an amazing team, a very small team but dedicated and passionate team of individuals will start cutting these pieces out so that if you just want to watch uh, you know, the, the breakdown of the Senate hearing. You just want to get that piece to your friends. By this evening, you'll be able to start delivering those pieces. Or if you only want to watch the show a little bit of the, at a time, all of that's available to you. And I know I don't have to say this because now six million of you have figured out how you want to uh, get through this show and experience this with us. I want to thank you. I want, I'm telling you, I guess just people that could brag about six million, I'm not happy with that. I, you know, someone said to me, six million, well, that's amazing. No, you know what would be amazing? A hundred million. You know, it'd be more amazing than that than a, than a billion, because this isn't about how big this show is. This show represents the truth. And the more people that watch it and the more I hear that watch and the more that walk up to me in airports and say, hey, I'm watching the high wire, the more I know we are getting closer and closer to that divine future that Dr. Richard Urso was just describing, a place with new hospitals and systems that get back to the doctor patient relationship, where we're, we embrace new technology, where we embrace natural health and natural immunity. All of that is on the horizon. It's a light that shines on the edge of these very dark clouds we find ourselves in the middle of. Those clouds are lifting. And if anything uh, showed us that, it was that this weekend that the people are rising up. I know that the next rally that we're going to put together will be even bigger than that, and they know it. And that's what's so powerful. They are scared. They are afraid because their news agencies are crumbling. Their hospitals aren't trusted. Their doctors aren't trusted. And now the confidence in the 
CDC and the FDA and the National Institute of Health and Fauci himself is coming down. And boy, are they afraid that you might start voting for politicians that decide to say, I'm going to question the science of vaccines and I'm going to have an investigation of Tony Fauci. You better get involved in the, your politics that way. I don't care if it's a Democrat. I don't care if it's a Republican, but they better answer to your concerns over what happened in this pandemic and what happened with this vaccine because a, an investigation is needed. A half a million people at least, if we are correct about the dangers of remdesivir and the success of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin that we've seen around the world, if we're right, then 500,000 people were murdered by medical malpractice here in the United States of America, led by Tony Fauci. I'm sorry. Those are Holocaust level numbers. And if this vaccine proves to have issues of antibody-dependent enhancement, which was in the hearing, but we didn't cover it today, but myocarditis and infertility, if we lead to destroying the fertility of the world, if we end up seeing this vaccine continue to make those more sick, to have antibody-dependent enhancement, where the next time someone comes across a flu virus or a coronavirus, that the vaccine helps that virus kill them and raises the death toll. If we keep seeing the 40% rise, what happens if it goes to 50% or 60% rise? What if the death rates in America start doubling because of this vaccine program or even worse? We could be looking at millions of deaths in our future, even billions. And so for anyone that says you're not allowed to make the comparison to the Holocaust because that was an atrocity. If these numbers bear out, if these issues end up proving true, then they are comparable. And all I have ever asked for, no one is calling for violence. In fact, I will be the first to say we are a peaceful and loving movement. I don't need to be violent. I have the greatest lawyer in the world. Aaron Siri is winning against the government. We have beat the CDC. We've won against the FDA. We've won against the National Institute of Health. We've won against Health and Human Services. I am using, there it is. There's the list of the, the cases that we've won right there. We're winning. I use the courtrooms. And so I guess if you're threatened by my statement that I'm going to have trials that come after you should only really be a threat if you're worried about going to jail. But don't try to turn that into some threat of violence. We're not threatening violence. We don't need violence. We have the truth. We have the courtrooms and we're winning. And I know you know that. So for all of you out there, your support is making this possible. These lawsuits have got them on the run. And believe me, now is the time. Now is the time we want to come at them hard because this is when they make mistakes. This is when they start trying to cover up their tracks. And in covering up their tracks too soon, they reveal what they've done here. We need to stay hard on them. We need to stay strong. So please continue your support. If you haven't already, you know, got involved with donating to ICANN and The High Wire, please do it now at thehighwire.com. It's where you're watching this donate to i can we're asking you for 2022 why don't you give us 22 dollars a month that's certainly a lot less than you're paying for cnn which is falling apart and fox which is at least many of the people there are aligned to you and msnbc and others less than your cable bill why don't you get involved? Why don't you be able to say, hey, when I saw Brandy Zerozny, you know, you know, really quibbling and upset and saying, Dell look like a rock star. And do you realize that, you know, they're making more money and, and, and than they did last year? And by the way, they're bringing more lawsuits than they did last year, too. You can say, I did that. I'm the one that's helping make this all possible. I'm the one that's helping build that new future that the high wire and the informed consent action network is involved in. In the end. 
It's all about us. In the end, on this day, as we look at, you know, 77 years ago, we were able to shut down Auschwitz. We're celebrating the Holocaust today. And what greater celebration is there than the recognition that it took place, that it is possible to happen again. And that even if we're being overly sensitive by nipping at every little possible milestone that looks similar to the Holocaust, if we are being oversensitive, let that be our issue. Certainly being overly sensitive versus not sensitive enough is the greatest tragedy that could ever happen. This is the high wire. We do not forget our past. We are here to protect our future.